Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. Good morning. Welcome to New Life. I'm Pastor Chris, the lead pastor, in case you're new here. We're so glad that you're with us today. As you saw, we're in a series called All In. What does it mean to be all in? You know, uh, if you want to know something today, what do you do? You Google it, right? So I Googled all in and came up with 946 million hits in seven tenths of a second. I tell you what, I'm still amazed that you can, you know, you can have all that information literally at your fingertips. Well, I didn't look up all 946,000 of those hits. But pr- apparently being all in is in these days. And here at New Life, when we talk about being all in, what we're talking about is the seven core values that drive us to the bullseye, which is to share, grow, and live the new life of Jesus Christ with the world one person at a time that we talked about in the month of September. And so, as I said last week, our prayer for this series is that everyone here and every person watching online will commit ourselves wholeheartedly. That's the key word underlined right there, wholeheartedly. That's what all in means, wholehearted to worshiping and following Jesus. And why is that important? Because Jesus wants followers. He doesn't want fans. He wants people who are wholeheartedly all in, engaged for him and his purposes. So we live in a culture that talks a lot about being all in, thinks a lot about it apparently. I mean, 946 million hits in seven-tenths of a second. Incredible. But what does that mean when it comes to worshiping and following Jesus? Well, here at New Life, what we did, we went to the Bible and we investigated what it means, or actually what's most important to God. And we came up with seven key values that God says are important. And that's what we want to go all in for, those seven core values. And so um, what we're going to do right now is we're going to talk about the second one. Uh, and we talked about the first one last week. We're going to talk about the next, third one next week. And as you can see, the seven-week series, pretty simple, right? So today, the take-home point, and for those of you who are new, the take-home point is the one point that we got from Scripture that we want to take home, pray about it, and then apply it in our lives in the week ahead. And so here it is. Uh, to go all in, we must care most about what God cares about most. That makes sense. If we're going to talk about worshiping and following Jesus, then we need to know what is it. What is it that he wants us to do, to be, and to do in our lives? And so um, we're going to look at these seven core values that we looked at last week. They're going to be up on the screen again. And just like last week, I'm going to ask you to talk about the action point that follows from the core value. I'll say the core value, then you say the action point. Okay, here they are up on the screen. We follow Jesus. Okay, we follow Jesus. All right, you guys are, it's 8.30 in the morning, and you're more, way more awake than the 6.30 last night people were. Okay, we care for lost people. We trust the Bible. We engage in worship. We, we love each other. We live in the Spirit. And we give generously. All right, so when we read the New Testament, especially... The four Gospels where we find out about the life, the teaching, the death and resurrection of Jesus. We find out that God cares a great deal about the lost. The reason we care for the lost is because God cares for the lost. And we live in an era where probably the term lost is not politically correct. Because we live in an era where it doesn't really matter what you believe or even if you believe nothing. But the truth is... If you read the four Gospels, you find out that God cares about the lost. 
And so, so do we. And let's think about what does it mean to be lost? In the, in the general sense of the word lost, it, it, it means, uh, let me be exact here, it means that you have gone astray or you've missed the way. And we've all been lost in the sense, that sense, right? We've taken a wrong turn in the road and we ended up somewhere we didn't want to go. Or maybe you've taken a walk in the woods and you've been on a path and there was, you know, there was, you know, there were two ways the path could go and you took the apparently wrong one and you ended up where you didn't want to go. Or maybe you just went to the shopping mall with your family and you somehow got separated from them. And even that kind of lost is scary and it can be anxiety producing. But what we're talking about today when we talk about being lost is we're talking about being separated from God. And according to the Bible, all of us were born that way. We were all born lost. We were all separated from God. And Jesus is the only one who can find us. Jesus is the only one uh, who is able to find us in that lost condition of separated from God. Now, I understand many in our culture don't believe that statement to be true. But here we are in a church and we're committed to teaching Jesus' truth and God's truth overall from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, in love. And so for us, it really matters. and It's very important for us to know what's true, regardless of the opinions of our culture. Because I learned a long time ago, it doesn't matter what we believe. It matters what's true. It doesn't matter what you and I believe. At the end of the day, what matters is what's true. And so we're going to turn to one of Jesus' parables, and it's a parable about lost sheep. And in fact, you know, Jesus calls us sheep a lot. I've, I talked about that a few weeks ago when we were talking about Jesus being the good shepherd. And Jesus is the good shepherd, and he lays down his life for the sheep. We're going to find, um, you know, we're going to talk about that a bit more when we get to the parable. But this parable is from the Gospel of Luke. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, there are three parables about lost things there's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin. And there's a lost son. And every time, the one who seeks for what is lost is God. Now, it doesn't say that in a parable because parables are stories, illustrations, and you sort of have to infer. But it's obvious from the context that the one looking, the one who's looking for the lost thing, that's God. And so we're going to turn to Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Before we do that, if you have your Bible or Bible app, I want you to turn there. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you so much that you are the God who seeks after us, who searches for us, who will not let us go. And God, we ask today that if there's any here in this place or watching online who haven't yet trusted Jesus, your son, as, as Lord and Savior, that they will today and that all of us who do will join you in that search for the lost ones so that all of us can be found. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, our spirits, our souls by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I do want to actually turn to one little verse in Scripture to point out how important it is to God to find us before you turn to Luke 15. It's found in Matthew chapter 18, verse 14. And Jesus said this, It is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. I just want us to remember again that God is always looking for us. God is always searching for us. He's, he is for us. And as the Apostle Paul said, if he's for us, then who could be against us, right? So in Luke 15, 1, uh, before, uh, whenever uh, what Luke does, and remember, Luke is the only gospel writer who tells us why he wrote. 
He wasn't one of the disciples. He was a Gentile, actually, which means a non-Jew. And he had become a believer, and he wanted to write an orderly account of what happened in Jesus' life. And he tells us that. And so he gives us some background, usually, in the situation. And here he gives us a little background. He says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Luke sets up uh, this parable by telling us that there were lost people always with Jesus. The lost people always wanted to be around Jesus. The lost people loved Jesus. Now the Pharisees, who considered themselves to be the found people, they didn't really like the lost people all that much, especially not the tax collectors and the notorious sinners. I don't know what that means. Probably prostitutes and other people who did things that in the culture of the day were considered, you know, really bad. Um, but, but in any case, the, the Pharisees said, this guy, you know, he talks to these people. He even eats with them. And you know what that means, of course. You don't invite somebody to dinner unless you like them. And, and so Jesus actually liked the lost people. And, and the Pharisees didn't think that was a good thing because they, they were already righteous in their own eyes. And Jesus, Jesus knew that a good story, in fact, a picture, is usually worth a thousand words. And so he decided to paint a word picture, not only for the Pharisees and teachers of the law, but also for those tax collectors and notorious sinners to show them how much God cares for the lost. And so here it says, so Jesus told them this this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Now think about the value that that shepherd put on that one lost sheep. The guy had a hundred sheep, a hundred, and only one was lost, just one. And yet he left the 99 in the wilderness, which is a, not a safe place to leave your 99, to go look for the one. And, and the only thing we can assume is that that one sheep was as valuable to that shepherd as the other 99. I mean, he cared about that one sheep as if there were only one sheep. And that's a very important thing for us to remember. Here's what I want you to remember. It's in your outline. I really didn't mention that we have an outline, but if you've been following along, uh, this is the next one where you're going to fill in the blank. If Jesus believed, uh, if you and I were the only lost person in the world, Jesus would still have come, he would still have lived his perfect life, and he would still have died on the cross for you or me. That's how much he cares. The good shepherd cares so much for the sheep, and we're the sheep, each one of us, that if there were only one of us who had sinned, He would still have come to the earth to die on the cross for us. Jesus wanted people to understand that. So this shepherd searches and searches and searches until he finds that one lost sheep. And then this is what Jesus says. And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. Now, I think the religious leaders were probably going, Really? (laughs) Really? He's going to have a party because of finding one lousy sheep. I don't think so. That's what the religious leaders were probably saying. But imagine if you were one of those tax collectors, one of those, you know, notorious sinners. And, and, and you heard this story. You were probably going, really? You mean, you mean God actually cares about me? Nobody has ever cared about me. There, there would have been a radical difference between the way the two groups saw the story. And Jesus wants to make sure that we understand how important it is to God when that one lost sheep, that one person is found. And and so this is how it says. He gets to the punchline. He says, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. So 
Jesus believed that lost people needed to be found. They needed to repent, which is, as he says, to turn back to God so that they can be found and so that they can be in relationship with him, the good shepherd, for the rest of our lives. And it was so important to him that that one person be found that he says that when that happens, there's a party in heaven. And so this is what we need to take away from this parable. If Jesus believed God cares about lost people so much that he throws a party in heaven whenever one is found, then we must care tremendously for lost people too. We must care just as much for the lost people as God cares for the lost people if we're going to be all in with this idea of worshiping and following Jesus. So the reason we care for lost people is one of our core values is because it's something for which um, God cares greatly. Jesus is all in for finding lost people. And so therefore we are as well. And I'm not going to take any more time to establish that lost people matter to God. That's pretty obvious. I'm not going to take any more time to establish that Jesus is all in for finding lost people because that's pretty obvious. But what I'd like to do for the rest of our time this morning is talk about what, after, what happens after we get found. After we're found, then we are called to help Jesus find the lost ones. And so we're going to turn now to a scripture in the book of Acts chapter 15. And in that book, uh, verse 19, or chapter 15, verse 19 to 21, and, and there was a big debate going on in the early church. The, the challenge was this. Lost people were getting found every day. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of lost people were coming to Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, but they were all Jews. All of them that were coming to Jesus were Jews. Makes sense, because Jesus was a Jew, you know, and he had spent his whole ministry in Israel. But now what happened was Gentiles, non-Jews, were starting to come to the Lord as well. God had called Peter to go to talk to this guy named Cornelius, who wasn't just a Gentile, but he was a Roman soldier. And, and, and so as Peter was talking to Cornelius and his whole family, the Holy Spirit fell on this group of people. And they were saved. They, they were found. And, and now... Peter had brought with him some Jewish Christians, and when they saw this, they were amazed. They were astounded. I mean, they couldn't believe it because they thought that God and his salvation, even the salvation of Jesus, was just for Jews. And, and so the question became, uh, you know, because human traditions are hard to break down. Did you ever notice that when somebody has a tradition, whether it's a family tradition, church tradition, whatever, it's sort of hard to break, right? Well, this tradition had been going on for a couple thousand years, so it's sort of hard to break. And, and so... The question becomes this, does a person have to become a Jew before becoming a follower of Jesus? Does a person have to follow all the 600 plus laws of Moses before he or she can come and follow Jesus? That's the question that was being debated. And, and so as, as they're discussing back and forth, which of these 600 plus traditions do we have to follow in order to follow Jesus? James, who was the head of the church at that time, the leader of the church on earth, said this. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So the key is what? We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Not difficult. That's amazing. Nothing was more difficult than trying to follow the 600 plus laws in the law of Moses. And so um, what, what the early church realized is, it's a very important thing to realize, is that they didn't need 
600 laws. They needed Jesus. They didn't need, actually what they didn't need was more tradition. They didn't need to have more rules and regulations. What they needed was Jesus. And so that was what they decided. They decided to take all of those rules, 600 plus rules, and break it down into three rules. Now, these rules are going to seem strange to us, but I'll explain why those three rules were important. The first one was don't eat meat offered to idols. The second one was don't participate in sexual immorality. And the third one was don't eat the meat of strangled animals or consume blood. So you mean they don't have to follow the Ten Commandments? Apparently not. You mean the guys don't have to get circumcised? Nope. The only thing that they cared about, in fact, these three things all were things that were part of pagan idol worship. And remember, most of the Gentiles, I mean, all of the Gentiles were worshiping something before they came to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. They were lost in idol worship. And so this whole thing about eating, you know, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, well, they would sacrifice animals to their gods, their idols. And so basically what the early church said is, uh, once that's done, don't eat that meat because you could be sort of considered to be participating in that. Don't practice sexual immorality because most of the pagan um, worship experiences included cult prostitution and things like that. So don't mess with that. And then the third one is even a little stranger. You know, don't eat uh, meat that's been strangled uh, and don't consume blood. Well, again, we, we don't live 2,000 years ago. The Jews had a rule. You could not eat blood because the life was in the blood. And so they slit the throat of the animals they were going to eat and drained out the blood. We still do that, actually. Um, but in pagan worship, they would drink the blood. So what, what they were really doing was saying, don't worship idols anymore. Just worship Jesus. So how easy is that? Instead of 600 plus rules, all we have to do is point them to the God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, who's seen most clearly in Jesus Christ. So the mandate becomes, for all of us who want to help find lost people, is don't make it hard for them. So, so what does that mean in 2017? I think one of the key things it means is that we ourselves become passionate for the God who saved us. We show others what it means to have a purpose in our lives, a meaning in our lives, a, a joy in our lives, the, the truth that we have anchored, that we can live out in our daily lives, and that we love people in that truth. Those are the kind of things that it means to not make it difficult for the Gentiles and, and all of the people that we know, most, not all, most of them are Gentiles, right? Most of our friends are not Jews. But the Jews, you know, we, I'm going to talk a little bit about that later because I'm going to tell you the way you help Jews uh, because the Apostle Paul let us know. But right now, what we're going to do is we're going to consider this question. How do you lead someone to Jesus? How do you lead someone to Jesus? The short answer is you don't lead someone to Jesus. The Holy Spirit does. But what Jesus does is he uses us to lead people to himself. We get to be the ones who speak the message, who live the message. And certainly we can get in the way. You know, when we are rude or when we are mean-spirited or when we see a group of people or an individual and we, we say, well, I, I, don't, I don't think that I'm going to waste my time on that person. That's just being like the Pharisees were in Luke 15 when they said, oh, why does Jesus eat with those people? The, the thing I learned a long time ago is there aren't any of those people, <laughs> right? Because I'm one of those people until Jesus comes into my life, and then I'm one of us people. And we're all us people once we get to know Jesus. So there aren't those people. God cares about all the people, and that's something we have to get into our minds and our hearts. So the next thing we need to do is understand this. There, there are just a few things we have to do to help somebody come to know Jesus. We're going to talk about them. Actually, four things. And the first thing is, we need to accept the personal responsibility. 
there are many people in the world who think that you shouldn't try leading somebody to Jesus because that's the job of the pastor, the job of the evangelist, the job of the missionary. But that's not true. Because right before Jesus went back to heaven, he said these words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the you is plural there, which means it includes everybody who has what? Received power. And how do you receive the power? You get it from the Holy Spirit. And how do you get that? By trusting Jesus, your Savior and Lord. So everybody who's found has the responsibility to tell other people about Jesus. Now, why, you might be sitting there thinking, well, Chris, that doesn't tell me how. You're not telling me how to lead somebody to Jesus or to help somebody come to know Jesus. You're just talking about this responsibility. And here's why. Long before I became a pastor, I took this responsibility personally. And why did I do that? Because when I was 12 years old and I trusted Jesus as my Savior and Lord, I'd already been reading the Bible for a while, but I came across verses like Acts 1.8. I came across verses like Matthew 28.16-20, the Great Commission. I came across verses that said, always be prepared to give a testimony to those who ask you about your faith, you know, the faith that lies within you. And, and we're supposed to do it in a, in a kind and gentle way, we're told. So anyway, all of these verses say that once I know Jesus... As my Savior and Lord, I have a responsibility to tell others about him. And I believe the Bible is true, so I just started doing it. And if we believe the Bible is true, then we know we have a responsibility. The next thing we must do is develop a personal relationship with people. Develop a personal relationship with people. Now, there are some who say... We're supposed to be witnesses. And that means that we should walk up to every person that we meet and we should just say, Hey, you, Dave. You know you're going to hell. You're going to burn in hell forever if you don't trust Jesus. No, you can do that. In fact, it's the truth. We are going to burn in hell if we don't know Jesus. But it's not really a very effective way in 2017 in America. Because a lot of people hear that and they go, what's wrong with that guy? You know, I mean, is he psychotic or what? I mean, seriously, there will be people who think that, right? And the thing is, I'm not saying that I have never walked up to somebody and said, hey, you need to know Jesus. But that's not the first thing I say. I at least develop a baseline of relationship. And that's, uh, I think that's really important, and, and it really doesn't matter what I think, but from a biblical standpoint, it's a very important thing to do as well. Because as we are build, building this relationship, what, what I do is I get people to ask me about Jesus. I don't tell them about Jesus. I get them to ask me about Jesus. And you say, how do you do that? That's the key. Well, I just do what the Apostle Paul did. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you might want to write that reference down, 1 Corinthians 9, because the Apostle Paul tells us there what he did. And this is where the Jews and the Gentile thing comes in. Paul says, when I hang out with Jews, I act like a Jew. In other words, I, I, I act like I'm from that Jewish background, because he was. He was a Pharisee, actually, before he came to know Jesus. And he says, when I hang out with Gentiles, I act like a Gentile. In fact, he says, I became all things to all people that I might by all means save some. And I do that for the sake of the gospel. So what Paul was saying was, when you meet someone, don't assume you know anything about that person. Just get to, get to know them a little bit. And you know how to get to know somebody. Everybody knows how to do that. You say, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? Do you have any hobbies? You know, just develop a conversation with the person. Now, I've learned over the past couple of years, somebody pointed this out to me, that if you say, what do you do? Most people turn immediately to the job, you know. And what if you don't have a job? What if you're retired? What if you, you know, are a stay-at-home parent? So I've come to learn 
that the best thing to do in that case is just to say, hey, what keeps you busy during the week? Because everybody does something to keep them busy during the week, right? So as you're having this conversation with the person, as it progresses, every person I've ever met will eventually voice a concern. Somebody will say, man, I don't know what to do with my husband. Or I don't know what to do with my kids. And so that's a personal concern, right? Or somebody just makes a general comment. Man, what got into that Stephen Paddock's head? How could somebody kill all those people out in Las Vegas? And when those questions come up, then, you know, I say, well, what do you think causes evil in the world? And they might have an answer, and I'll go, oh, well, that makes sense. Or, or if they don't have an answer, it makes sense. Well, I think the reason there's evil in the world is because we've turned away from the truth and love of Jesus. And if they ask me to follow up with that, then I do. If they ask me, if they say, oh, I don't want to talk about religion, I will usually say, well, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about Jesus. But if you don't want to talk about him, let's not. Because I, it, the, what I've found is when you push people, there's an old saying my mother used to say. I'm sure it wasn't her saying, but a man or woman convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. You don't coerce people to become followers of Jesus. It doesn't work that way. But here's the third thing I found is the longer I talk with the person, interact, and ask questions and get to know them, the easier it is for me to do the third thing that we need to do, which is share your personal story. I love it when somebody says to me, man, I have such a big problem with anger because I can immediately go, man, I used to also. I used to have such a big problem with anger, actually, for 50 years of my life. And then they'll go, really? You don't have it anymore? No. And if they ask me, well, why? <laughs> okay, you want to know? Let me tell you. Well, it's really because I read this book called Change Your Heart, Change Your Life. And in that book, I found out how God changes our heart so that the anger can go away. In my case, it was anger. And uh, then we talk. And, and sometimes that conversation leads the whole way to the fourth point. It doesn't always, but the fourth point that we need to do is we need to offer a personal invitation. Offer a personal invitation. And one of the things I, I think that we, before we get to offer a personal invitation thing is when we're sharing our personal story, it's always better if you have somebody with you. Somebody who's praying for this whole situation, for the Holy Spirit to work in the, the life of the person, you know. And while you're talking, that person prays. And while, you know, if that person starts to talk and there's something that they want to inter interject, then you start to pray. And, and Pastor Matt Geppard and Jesse Scheller and I did that in a music store in Cambodia. And, uh, and the guy eventually, he, he actually went all the way to, we offered the invitation, he trusted Jesus. And it was so cool. It doesn't always work out that way. But okay, so offer the personal invitation. Don't talk to somebody about Jesus and get them right up to the point where they're so excited about Jesus and you go, well, I gotta go. Just say, would you like to know Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord? Would you like to surrender your life to him? And, and, and maybe that's what you're led to, but maybe you're not. Maybe you say, well, you know, I, I'm not sure that they're quite ready for that. So what you could do is say, why don't you come to worship with me this weekend? Because I guarantee you something. If you bring somebody here to New Life, they will hear about Jesus. If you bring somebody here to New Life, they will hear about how they can come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Lost people get found here at New Life. So if you aren't sure that it's the right time yet, bring them here. Because, you know, uh, one of the things you know about us is we care for lost people. We care for lost people here at New Life. And some people might ask, well, why? Well, obviously, because God does. But I'll tell you, I care about lost people maybe more than a lot of people do. And here's the reason I think it is. Because when I was five years old, I found out I was lost. And, and so I'm a slow learner. It took me until I was 12 until I actually got found. 
But during those years, I was still reading my Bible. I was still learning. I was still growing. And, and I realized just how much God loves me, and I realized just how much grace and mercy God has shown me. And, and I want to share that with as many people as I can during my lifetime. And, and, and so when we understand that we were lost and now we're found, when we understand that Jesus has given us a new life and we're born again, we want everybody to be born again. We want everybody to have that experience that we have. And the thing is, whenever we don't do that, somebody does die and go to hell forever. That's the consequence of our not, you know, taking the responsibility, not building a personal relationship not telling our story, not inviting people into the kingdom. But Jesus also told us what happens when we do. When we do and the person gets found, there's a party in heaven. Every time somebody trusts Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, they have a party in heaven. I'm so glad there's a lot of parties in heaven. And, and my prayer every day is that I'll have an opportunity to talk to somebody, to have that, that opportunity to you know, build a relationship, to share, and ultimately to invite somebody. And as we do that more and more and more and more, our community comes to be a community of faith. And, and here's the thing I want you to understand. A new church started up in, uh, in uh, Penn Township this morning over at Penn Christian Academy. In fact, in about 11 minutes, they have their first service. And I've been praying for them this morning. It's an Orchard Hill church plant. And I've been praying for them. Uh, I saw an article in the paper, and, and in that article it said there are 79,000 people in Butler County who don't go to church. And I'll bet you there's more than 79,000 people in Butler County who are lost. There's 225-ish thousand people in Butler County. We need a lot more churches. I mean, what if 79,000 people showed up here today? Huh, be a little challenging, wouldn't it? You'd have to give up your seat. Uh, but anyway, but anyway, the point is that we have a great opportunity to do those things. And we do them here at New Life because we care for lost people because God does. And we're all in for that. Because we know that the consequence is life and death. Not just here and now, but for eternity. So here's the, here's the commitment for today. I will intentionally build a relationship with someone who needs Jesus this week. Now that's the second of the four steps, and it's the easiest one. Taking personal responsibility. A lot of people have a hard time getting over that roadblock, but I'm just going to skip that one because I know that we have to do that. But let's build a relationship with somebody who needs Jesus this week. It might be a family member, somebody at school, somebody at work, somebody. And as we do that, what's going to happen is you're going to get the opportunity to share your story. And eventually, you're going to get the opportunity to invite somebody to give their life to Jesus. And when that happens in your life, that is the best thing ever. And when we start to have that attitude as all of us, then what will happen is that number of 79,000 will at least go down to 78, 77, 76, right? Thousand people. And we need, to, we need to make a dent in it because those people, God loves them. Those people, they're us people, but they just don't know it yet. Right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you so much for loving us despite everything in our background. God, thank you so much that for you there weren't any Pharisees or notorious sinners, but we were all just lost people who need you to find us. Thank you that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And thank you that we get to continue to do that. Fill us with your spirit, God, that we will take that responsibility seriously, that we will care for lost people because you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.